When Methuselah was 369 years old, his son Lamech gave him a grandson. And when this grandson was born, Lamech said, quote, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. End quote. The comment here refers to God's curse on the ground after Adam and Eve sinned. That curse was a thousand years old at this point, but Lamech hadn't given up. He still believed that God would save them, and he embedded that hope into his boy's name. For his whole life, this kid carried around a name that meant rest or comfort. This is the story of Noah. This is the Millennials, part three. in the Bible that people forget. The name Noah isn't one of those. In the United States, out of 20 million baby boys born between 2010 and 2019, the name Noah was the most popular choice. Just under 1%, just under 1 out of every 100 baby boys born in the U.S. in the last decade got the name Noah. England and Wales are about the same way. In just the last year, Noah was among the top 10 most popular baby names for mothers of all ages in those countries. The name Noah is popular today, but usually when you hear about Noah in the Bible, the story is Noah and the Ark. But that starts 500 years into his life, and you could argue that the most important choices he made happened a lot earlier. Noah was born 1,056 years after Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, and by the time he was born, people had started to die of old age. Adam died 126 years before Noah's birth. Adam's son, Seth, died 14 years before Noah arrived. Even Noah's great-grandfather Enoch was gone. God had taken him away almost seven decades earlier. Noah showed up late, and he's the first person in the Bible who never had the chance to meet Adam or Seth or Enoch or hear their stories firsthand. Every earlier generation, Noah's father, grandfather, all of them going all the way back, every one of them overlapped with all three of those people. Everyone but Noah had the chance to ask Adam for details about the Garden of Eden or the snake or the tree or to go get advice from Enoch about how to follow God. So, Noah grew up with a handicap. He got the stories secondhand. The history he learned came from the perspective of his father or grandfather and through the lens of what they remembered, not from an eyewitness. The eyewitnesses were gone. I'd guess that that missing connection, that had to make life harder for Noah. He didn't get to work with primary sources. He had to have faith that the stories he learned were right, even if they only came as hand-me-downs. And what might have been going on in the rest of the world, it probably didn't make things any easier. Because for most everyone else, having Adam and Enoch gone, that would be something to celebrate. Think about it like this. If, like Cain, you were someone who refused to follow God, if you hated him, and you're the kind of person who goes around trying to convince everyone else to hate him too, people like Adam and Enoch, they would be awful to have around. If you're standing in a city square telling people that God is cruel and unfair, that humans never did anything wrong, 
Adam might pop out of the crowd and start to fact-check you. He was in Eden. He ate the fruit. He knows humans are at fault. The moment Adam shows up, the debate's over. Then there's the other guy, Enoch, who walks and talks with God. If you're on your soapbox preaching about God the slave driver, telling everyone that God made impossible demands, imagine Enoch walking by. He's not really listening to you because he's chatting with God as a friend. Enoch proved that God still liked humans and he wanted them as his companions. That's tough to compete with. People aren't going to listen to you so much when Enoch shows up, right? There were probably other people, but I imagine Adam and Enoch were maybe the worst of them. They might have caused the most trouble. Now, it's not like you didn't have options. I'm guessing here, imagining how it would work based on what people do today. But put on your dictator hat for a moment and think about what you could do to solve the problem. If you're like most dictators, you might just go to page one of the handbook, send in some henchmen, and kill them. That would get rid of your unwanted evangelists, and it would scare everyone else into hiding, right? That would be step one. Next, if you couldn't actually destroy the Garden of Eden, you'd at least block access to it. You don't want people visiting the gate and seeing the altars and the angels and the flaming sword, so you'd send in some troops, set up a restricted zone, put up a fence, maybe some barbed wire. You'd tell people that it was all being done for security. Gotta keep people safe. But your real goal would be to keep people out. To keep them from seeing things that might make them believe in God. You could do all of that. And that's where a lot of dictator-type control goes, to using force and censorship. But then again, doing that can backfire. Boston's a good example here. It was founded by the Puritans in 1630, and for people who left England because of religious persecution, they weren't the most tolerant lot. Early on, they banned Christmas. Being a Quaker in Boston, a religion of pacifists, officially known as the Society of Friends, being a Quaker could get you imprisoned or executed. That was the early years, but they say habits die hard, and it was true here, because by the late 1800s and first half of the 1900s, Boston was notorious for censoring things it found indecent. The thing is, a lot of people like indecent stuff. And censorship, that was just free publicity. Publicity that led, perhaps unsurprisingly, to sales of that stuff going up. In one example from the 1920s, Upton Sinclair's book, Oil, it wasn't selling well, and Sinclair complained to a friend that he wished Boston would ban it. Boston did ban it, and monthly sales tripled. As the story goes, Sinclair was at Grand Central Station at one point, looking at a four-foot-tall stack of his book in a bookseller's shop, and the seller told him that the whole stack would be sold out in a day because so many people bought a copy before getting on the train to go home to Boston. Ultimately, Sinclair is quoted as referring to the United States as an author's market, and Boston as an author's advertising department. If the goal was to stop people from reading his book, banning it in Boston was a bad move. And this isn't the only time it happened. More than 40 years earlier, publishers had already figured out that the phrase, banned in Boston, might be helpful in selling their books. For wannabe dictators, there's a lesson here. You can censor things, but if you do it wrong, it might lead to more people finding out the stuff you're trying to hide. 
So if when Adam and Enoch stood up to encourage people to follow God, if you killed them, if you executed the world's first man, I can imagine people starting to ask questions you don't want them asking. You can tell people you're restricting access to the Garden of Eden for their own good, but if they don't trust you, that just makes them curious. Everyone who was too busy to visit Eden when it was free will start sneaking under the fence and crawling over the barbed wire just to get a glimpse now that it's off limits. Instead, if you want to get rid of something, maybe there's a sneakier way to do it. Don't stop people from learning the history. Just rewrite the story so people learn what you want them to learn. If I was doing it, I'd start with the physical evidence. The Garden of Eden, the Flaming Sword, and the Angels. You've got to deal with that stuff first. But rather than destroying it, make it boring. Think about what we do today. Today, we might call the Flaming Sword a natural phenomena. You could have scientists publish papers labeling it static electricity and suggesting it came from unusual magnetic fields produced by the geology of the area. For the angels, you'd put out articles calling them wildlife and saying that they were unique and intriguing, but really just one part of a complex ecosystem. It's fine if this story is unlikely. You can always tell people that just because something's unlikely doesn't mean it's untrue, right? The main point is that this doesn't have to be a good explanation. It just needs to be good enough. It just needs to get most people to ignore it. From there, it's easy to rewrite the other stuff. Those thousand-year-old altars, probably up by the gate to the garden. As I imagine it, you'd tell people they were artifacts, left over from ancient religious practices. You'd say they came from a time when people didn't understand science and worshipped nature instead. That they saw the electricity in the air there and thought it was something magical. And once you've done all of that, now you can tell a different version of the story of your own society. Genesis says that Cain was a jealous fugitive who killed his brother and went on to become the founder of a civilization. But if you're one of the descendants of that guy, you might put it differently. You could say that Cain wasn't an envious murderer. He was a free thinker. He figured out that the flaming sword, that wasn't anything special, and that bringing offerings to it was just ridiculous mysticism. The real villains, in your version of it, the real villains were the people who wouldn't listen to him, who rejected his logic and drove him into exile for challenging their religious superstitions. In your version, Cain wasn't the criminal. He was the victim. Think about that for a minute. You don't have to deny where Cain came from. You just have to put some spin on the story. And all of a sudden, he's not this ancestor to be ashamed of. He's a champion of reason who suffered at the hands of a cult that tried to force mindless obedience. This is all hypothetical, right? It's me playing Machiavelli for a moment and speculating about what I would do if I wanted to convince people to abandon God. But these ideas, they have some basis in reality. There are lots of stories in history of people rewriting the past so it says what they want it to say. Eighty years ago, after the Spanish Civil War ended and he became dictator of the country, Francisco Franco made a movie about the war that made himself out to be the hero. And then, ten years later, when the political situation shifted, he tried to destroy the original version and recut the film so he could change history again. If you go a little further back, 140 years ago, King Leopold II of Belgium tried to tell the world that what he was doing in Congo was focused on the good of the natives. 
it wasn't. And that it wasn't just a way to make lots of money, which it was. Just over 2,000 years ago, Julius Caesar claimed his family tree went back to both the goddess Venus and to Aeneas, a Trojan warrior who survived the fall of Troy and, according to legend, traveled to Italy and was an ancestor of Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome. About 300 years before that, Alexander the Great came from a ruling family claiming to be descended from Heracles, the son of Zeus, the Greek version of Hercules, as well as from Achilles, also of Trojan War fame. Later on, that genealogy got even shorter, and Zeus was his own dad, not just a distant relative. Go back another 500 years before that, and there's evidence of Assyrian kings who would chisel the names of earlier Assyrian rulers out of stone monuments listing their accomplishments, and carve their own name in its place so they could claim the credit. At the time, the practice was so common that one king, Asher Nasserpal II, engraved a curse on anyone who might in the future come and try to alter his inscription. We're now back about 2,800 years, but even by that point, people already had hundreds of years of experience trying to change history. Because if you go back to the 1400s BC, the Egyptians under Thutmose III went around smashing statues of Queen Hatshepsut and cutting her name out of the king list. He apparently didn't want people to remember that a woman held the throne before he did. Today, we only know about her because apparently the Egyptians weren't very thorough, and after scholars figured out hieroglyphics in the 1800s, they translated some previously unreadable inscriptions. All these people tried to tell history their way. Today, we'd call this propaganda. The word comes from the 1600s name of a group of missionaries, but it was repurposed in the 19th century as a way to describe the practice of feeding people ideas or facts or gossip or outright lies to help one cause or damage another one. The word is new, but from modern times to Rome to Greece to Assyria and Egypt, the practice is very old. Old enough that I'd guess that it was something Noah had to deal with too. Propaganda is old, and it's popular because there are a lot of benefits. Compared to the alternatives, rewriting history is cheap. Think about the effort you have to put into censorship, all the enforcement you have to do. In East Germany, during the Cold War, the Stasi, the secret police, had enough employees that there was one spy per 166 citizens. If you include the regular and occasional informants in that number, as much as 15% of the population could have been involved with the secret police. In other words, at any gathering of 10 people, there'd have probably been at least one person there who was somehow connected to the Stasi. Keeping that kind of thing going is expensive. Everything you spend on censorship and enforcement is money, time, and energy you can't spend on other stuff. Instead, if you change the story and give people a history that tells them what they want to hear, you don't have to do all of that. These people in Noah's day, they wanted to abandon God. Getting rid of God meant they could go after any desire, any vice that they felt like going after without the guilt. Give them a believable enough excuse, and you don't have to spy on them or force them to follow the rules. They do it for you. They self-censor. And for anyone who still believed the old history, they'd shame them or peer pressure them into silence. That's the first benefit of propaganda. You tell people a lie they want to believe, and you don't have to enforce obedience. The second benefit is the other side of that coin. All the people who still believe that religious stuff, the original history, you've taken their heritage and twisted it around. Now no one thinks of them as the faithful few who stayed true to God. 
Now they're the gullible hillbillies. You've gotten everyone to believe that following God isn't something to be proud of. It's something to be embarrassed about. These aren't people to respect, but people to pity. Get enough of your society pushing the idea that anyone who follows God is a naive simpleton, and maybe some of those people start to tip your way. Start to give up on religion and switch sides just to avoid the stigma that comes from staying faithful. In short, changing the story keeps your people loyal, and it makes everyone else want to convert to your side. That's why you do it. Because if you do it right, maybe society does the work for you. Okay, you can take off your dictator hat now. I'm backing out of the rabbit hole. But part of the reason I went off on that tangent is because I wanted to try to get you to think of the world Noah might have lived in. To get you into Noah's shoes a little bit. We hear the story of Noah, but we don't think of his world as a real place. We forget that, just like the world we live in today, the history in Genesis probably wasn't the only option Noah had. I imagine he had to choose between the stories he heard from his father and grandfather or one of the alternative theories swirling around. And misinformation about God could have been a big part of what Noah had to work through and something he had to work through without having Adam and Enoch to go to with his questions. And these issues, these weren't ivory tower debates. Which version of history you picked, it changed everything about how you lived. If you followed God, you stayed by Eden and offered those sacrifices and trusted that God would follow through on his promise to save you. If you didn't want to do that, you packed up and left, just like Cain did a thousand years before. As I imagine it, that was Noah's world. Those were the decisions he and everyone else had to make. And everyone else? Almost all of them packed up and left. And when Noah chose to follow God, because that's what he did, he got left behind. At this point, I'm caught up with where the last episode ended. The descendants of Seth, those sons of God, they've abandoned God and gone and married into Cain's family. They've joined up with the culture, probably led by Jabel and Jubal and Tubal, Cain and Nama, and God looks down at the earth and sees that it's only evil continually. One place translated that phrase as evil every day or all day long. That's about where I left off with the last episode, but Genesis goes on. When God looked at the earth and saw that it was that way, Genesis says, quote, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. End quote. Now, this makes it sound like God changed his mind, but scholars are quick to point out that this is meant as a figure of speech. Genesis was written by humans for humans, so it describes God's reaction to what he sees people doing the way you'd expect a human to react. God looks at the world that he created perfect, only 1,500 years earlier, and he sees that the whole earth was corrupt and full of violence, and he decides to undo creation. God says, quote, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. End quote. As one scholar put it, God decided to destroy a world that had, in effect, destroyed itself already. And then God starts a countdown. He gives humans 120 years of probation. And so they don't lose track of the deadline, literally a point when people will die. He sets up a visual aid, a kind of an hourglass, that will count down how much time they have left. And that brings me back to Noah, the guy who didn't follow the crowd. Because Noah's the one who's going to be building that hourglass. Genesis doesn't say what happened during most of Noah's life, but now when the story comes back to him, 
He's about 500 years old. He's essentially alone as a follower of God. And God comes to talk to him and tell him what he's decided to do. This is where the Bible describes Noah for the first time. And it gives us some clues about what set Noah apart from the rest of the world. It says, quote, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, end quote. The first part, that Noah was righteous, that can also mean just, as in fair. One scholar thinks this refers to what people thought of Noah. He was consistent, he was honest, he didn't do one thing in public and another in private. The second half of the phrase, that Noah was blameless, that can also be translated perfect. And that could refer to how God saw Noah. Now, I want to be careful here. Noah wasn't perfect in the sense of being free from sin. We know that because right after God says he's going to destroy the world, Genesis says, quote, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. End quote. That word favor, that can also be translated grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the first clear reference in the Bible to the idea that comes up over and over that humans couldn't get back to God on their own, but only if God reached down and rescued them. And it says this in reference to Noah. So we know that Noah wasn't perfect. Instead, the perfect could refer to perfect faith, as in complete faith or sincere faith. One commentary called it simple faith, that Noah simply trusted God and obeyed him. And I wonder if that faith came in part because of the handicap I talked about earlier. I wonder if the fact that Noah never met Adam or Enoch, if that disadvantage was really an asset in disguise. They say when you lose your eyesight that other senses get better to compensate. People learn to read with their fingertips. They learn to navigate the world by listening to how sounds bounce off the objects around them. Dyslexia is another example of the same thing. In the general population, 15 or 20% of people are dyslexic, depending on who you ask. Strangely, among entrepreneurs, including some of the most successful people in the world, 35% could have dyslexia. In our society, where reading and writing are key, how do some people excel when they struggle with those things? One theory is that they had to learn how to do things differently. They were limited in one area, just like people who are blind, so they exercised other skills most people never bother to practice. Maybe they found out ways to delegate that developed their leadership skills. Maybe they figured out how to listen more closely to what people said and the way they said things, since they couldn't trust that they'd get all they needed from words on a page. In his time, maybe Noah did some version of the same thing. This is my speculation, but maybe because Noah never met Adam and Enoch, he had to exercise more faith than other people who had met them. He had to make a conscious choice to believe God, and perhaps that choice was one of the keys that helped him stay true when so many others defected. Genesis emphasizes Noah's commitment. It says, quote, Noah walked with God, end quote. The only other person described that way was Enoch. Enoch walked with God on earth, and he kept walking all the way to heaven. Noah never met his great-grandfather, but in trying to describe what Noah was like, Genesis goes back to that same phrase, and it says he developed the same kind of friendship with God that Enoch had. That's Noah at this point in his life. He's consistent and fair with everyone else, and he has a perfect faith in God. And because they walked together, God came to tell Noah what he was about to do. He tells him, quote, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. End quote. 
The word there for destroy, that means to wipe clean. And I imagine Noah taking this two different ways. On the one hand, he's not surprised. He knows the world's been falling apart for a while. Something had to happen. But if you stop there, Noah's not a real person. He's just this two-dimensional character. As much as he knew the world was full of evil, there had to be thousands of things that he liked that he was going to be sad seeing destroyed. Noah would have hated what the world had become, but it still had to be hard to accept that everything would soon be gone. God says he's going to wipe the world clean, and then he starts to explain to Noah how to survive. Noah needs to build a boat. Specifically, God tells Noah to make an ark out of gopher wood. He needs to divide the inside into different rooms and coat the whole thing inside and out with pitch. So there's a few interesting things here. The term Genesis uses for ark comes from Egypt. It refers to the large boats used to transport obelisks and statues on the Nile. Think of a moving box-shaped temple. That's the idea. Noah is building a floating vault meant to guard whatever was inside. If you're reading this story in Genesis and you don't know what's going to happen next, that's the kind of visual you might be getting. Noah's making a box, and he's told to make this vault out of gopher wood. Now, we don't know what that was. Gopher is just a word from the original language, and translators don't know what it means. Scholars can only guess, and the best guess they have is that Noah used cypress. And that makes some sense. Cypress has a lot of ideal qualities. It grows straight and tall, it keeps its shape and doesn't warp or twist, it's good for large-scale construction, it's durable and resistant to both water and rot, and its fibers are saturated with oils and sap that act as a natural sealant and a preservative that wards off insects. In fact, this durability of cypress comes up in other places in history. Both the Egyptians and the Athenians used cypress to build their coffins, and as the story goes, during the time of Constantine the Great, they used cypress to make doors for a church in Rome, doors that hadn't decayed and were still around 1,100 years later. We don't know that Noah used cypress, but it makes sense as an option. And when God tells Noah to waterproof the wood by coating the inside and outside with pitch or bitumen, that fits too. Because historically, the word in Arabic for one type of cypress is literally translated tar tree, because you can use cypress wood to make tar. If you're just reading along through the story, so far the task is pretty reasonable. Noah's been told to build a boat, make little rooms inside, and waterproof it. Then we learn the size. God says that this ark needs to be, depending on your definition of cubit, 515 feet long, over 85 feet wide, and 51 and a half feet tall. It needs to have three decks, it needs to have a door in the side, and it needs to have, as best we can tell, a window near the top, probably for light and ventilation. When we talk about big ships today, we like to compare ship sizes to the Titanic. Most people don't know how big the Titanic was, but we think of it as this really large ship. So if it helps for scale, Noah's being asked to build a ship over half the length, half the height, and almost as wide as the Titanic. And with telling him the size, now the rest of the story comes out. Noah is building this boat, not just so he can survive, but for everything that's going to survive. There's going to be a flood, a global flood. All those little stalls and chambers, the little rooms Noah's supposed to build inside, the word in the original language is nests. Noah is being told to build nests for animals and for storing food. 
This isn't just some boat. This is a cargo ship and a life raft tied into one ship. And it needs to be big enough for everything that's going to live through the flood. Because when God wipes the world clean, this ark will be the only thing left. When you tell a story about the ark, once you get past the specifics in the Bible, there's all kinds of controversy. And the main one is, could this have even happened? Are we talking about a myth here? First, let's deal with the size. You might hear that the ark was too big to be made out of wood. Big wooden ships, they flex and twist. The boards separate and water leaks in past the oakum wadding that was used to seal the seams between them. People say a boat the size of Noah's ark would turn into driftwood in all but the calmest seas. Another argument is that after taking a hundred years to build it, the wood might be rotting in some sections before other sections were ready to be done. And then there's the question of launching a big boat. If it's on the coast, tidal waves would destroy it. If it's inland, you have no way to get it to the coast, and water washing across the land would destroy it. These arguments and others come up. And those are issues, but they depend on your assumptions. For the boat to be too fragile, you have to assume that Noah constructed the ark the same way we built wooden ships up until about 100 years ago. That system was called carval framing. It comes out of the way ships were built in the Mediterranean Sea during the Middle Ages. In that form of shipbuilding, there's a frame, and then the hull is made up of boards that attach edge to edge. It's good for making a streamlined boat, but not a very strong one. In rough water, that type of construction was weak, and it would tend to leak. If you needed to make something stronger, there are a lot of alternatives. Instead of carval framing, Noah could have used multiple layers of planking, perhaps layering them along diagonals. He could have added walls inside to work as reinforcing bulkheads, sort of like you'd expect from a ship that was supposed to have lots of little rooms. That's just a couple of the options, and these aren't 21st century inventions. 1,500 years ago, ships from China used internal bulkhead walls to make watertight compartments. Used the right way, you can build big ships out of wood. 600 years ago, the Chinese treasure fleets included wooden ships of a similar scale to the Ark. If you go further back, one of the Ptolemaic kings of Egypt built a ship, probably a catamaran, as much as 420 feet long, while the Emperor Caligula had a ship for hauling an obelisk from Egypt to Rome that was something like 300 feet long at the waterline. As far as the wood decaying while the Ark was under construction, Cyprus can be a very rot-resistant species. This is especially true of the heartwood, near the core of the tree. So old-growth cypresses are best, just the kind of thing Noah might have had available, what with 1,500-year-old cypress trees growing since Eden. And for those concerns about tidal waves and fast-moving water, one solution is to build the ark at the top of a hill, away from the coast and the tidal waves, and above where the water will rush down through the valleys. That way, the water will come up under the ark, so when it does start to float, it washes into deeper water and floats above the debris. The point is not that this is how things were done, just that the arguments against the Ark aren't ironclad. The story in Genesis still holds up. And the details about the size of the Ark actually make it sound more like history. Because the proportions of the ship, six times longer than it was wide, ten times longer than it was tall, those ratios are very close to what naval architects use today to design and build the world's largest container ships. In fact, in a study in the 1990s of 12 different shapes for the hull of a ship, the shape used for the Ark was the best for balancing stability, structural strength, and sea keeping, the ability of a ship to stay at sea during serious storms. In other words, the hull of the Ark, its length, width, and depth, put it in the Goldilocks zone for good boat design. 
The story in Genesis fits with what we know today of the physics of large ships. It fits with how you design a ship in the real world. And these sorts of details make the Ark sound a lot more like history and a lot less like myth. But that leaves a question. Why did Noah have to do something? Why didn't God wipe things clean and just go around Noah? The best explanation we have for that is related to the faith and grace I talked about earlier. Grace is something only God can offer. Faith was Noah's job. And building the ark? That's how Noah demonstrated his faith. Building the ark was evidence that Noah believed what God said and that he trusted God to save him. One commentary had a succinct way of explaining the overlap between God's promise and man's responsibility. It said that salvation was something we couldn't do without God and something that God wouldn't do without us. God can save us without our help, but he won't. He doesn't force people to do things against their will. From Eve in the garden and down through history, it's always a choice. And that brings me back to where I started this episode. We focus on Noah when God came to talk to him about the ark. But maybe that starts 500 years too late. Maybe Noah's most important decisions came earlier. It came when he chose to have faith in God. Building the ark, that was just proof of the faith he already had. When God finished telling Noah about the ark here, Genesis has a final line. It says, quote, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. End quote. It is, perhaps, one of the best definitions of simple, perfect faith found anywhere in the Bible. When God left Noah that day, the hourglass was set to 120 years. And as Noah got to work, as he began to cut down trees and clear the land, I wonder what he thought about the flood. And I wonder how often his thoughts turned to the rest of the world, to everyone else, and just what they would do when they saw him building a cargo ship at the top of a hill. For 500 years, Noah walked with God when the rest of the world didn't. It turns out, that was the easy part. The next 120 years are the challenge. God gave Noah plans for how to build a cargo ship, and he told Noah there would be a flood. The next episode is what happens when the rest of the world finds out. Until then, if you want to dig deeper into the story, WiderBible.com has references, links, and show notes with details from the episode. There are also articles and diagrams on other topics, as well as a place to ask questions and a page where you can subscribe if you want to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Scholl. Thanks for listening.